Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. How important are your genes for your medical health? Are they the magic bullet, a pipe dream, or somewhere in between? Genetics, making sense of the code. Tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Good evening and welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc. In the mid-1800s, Augustinian friar Gregor Johann Mendel was also a scientist whose study of traits in pea plants founded modern genetics. We've come a long way since then. First, let's begin with a look at this week's Prairie Dot quiz question. True or false? Direct-to-consumer home test kits for genetic disease risk are all standardized and validated the same as a certified genetics lab. We'll give you the answer at the end of the program. Joining us tonight in studio is Dr. Katherine Hayek of Sanford Imagenetics. Welcome, Cassie. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. It's fun to be yeah. here. Yeah. So we're talking about genetics. This is not a specialty of medicine that is, you know, old. We don't have a lot of genetic specialists in our region. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, your training, and how you decided this was going to be your path? Yeah, so, right, we have, um, in, in Sioux Falls, we have th three geneticists trained, um, and then the next couple are in North Dakota. So th mm -hmm. there aren't too many of us around. But um, genetics is interesting in that, for the past many years, it's been really a field of pediatrics, but it mm -hmm. actually really had its start as a specialty of medicine in, in adults. So okay. it was common for internists to go into um, genetics. And then it evolved into pediatrics because that's where a lot of uh, genetic conditions arise and become apparent. Right. Um, but now we have evolved over um, uh, time and learned a ton about genetics and, and things are shifting and we recognize genetic disease in, in adulthood now too. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went into medicine, um, started out in internal medicine and uh, really loved loved working in primary care, um, working to keep patients healthy and well. And um, with genetics, you can actually identify genetic conditions that can help with that prevention and really yeah. identifying risk and improving patients' um, outcomes. So that's kind of what got me interested in genetics. How do we use that to, to improve wellness overall for patients? Yeah, and so you had been an attending physician for a couple of years before you went back and mm -hmm. got your fellowship in genetics training, is that right? Yes. And so where did you do your genetics training and how long did that training take you and, and yeah. that kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, so I did my genetics training at University of California in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. um, which was a great place to be. I got to be at several different uh, centers, which, as you can imagine, in genetics, there's a lot of rare disease. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's important to um, to be in different places. So you can get exposure mm -hmm. to a lot of different things. So mm -hmm. the reason, though, I chose that program is actually because of the emphasis on adult genetics, mm -hmm. and also on the emphasis of common disease genetics. Yeah. Um, 
And so there's just a, a, an evolving aspect of the field that is, um, that is moving towards better understanding the genetics of common disease like heart disease and diabetes mm -hmm. and how might we use that to, to help with um, patient risk and caring for our patients. Yeah, yeah. And so um, your, your practice, tell me what your clinical practice looks like. What type of patients do you see? What kind of referrals do you get? And, and what does that look like? Yeah, so I see uh, adults are referred to me uh, for either um, a personal or family history that's suspicious mm -hmm. for a genetic condition. So things that might be suspicious would be a family where multiple generations are affected with uh, a similar condition, um, family members or individuals who have conditions that are earlier in onset than you might typically expect. So for example, a very early onset breast cancer would be suspicious potentially for a genetic predisposition. Um, sure. I will see there's a fair number of sort of early 20-year-old patients who at the time they were born, genetic testing wasn't really far enough along. And sure. so the testing they had didn't reveal any cause for you know the the conditions they present with but um, today we can offer them new opportunities for diagnosis which mm -hmm. is huge in some of these families where they have um, you know maybe severe disease and have been looking for an answer to why mm -hmm. for years and um, many times with uh, genetic evaluation we can uncover that for them. Yeah, interesting, and that's that's a great segue into just the technology behind genetic genetics and um, our analysis of DNA is so different and sophisticated now compared to even, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. It's, I mean, we can do it quickly. Yeah. It used to take a long time yeah. to sequence DNA, right? So yes. like, tell me, how, how do these labs do this? Well, it's really impressive because even in the time, in the time that I was in training, mm -hmm. Um, this, the, you know, my training center was a site for something called the Undiagnosed Disease Network um, through the uh, NIH, and we, um, that program would offer whole exome sequencing to patient among other um, very, you know, complex diagnostics. Mm -hmm. Well, whole exome sequencing is a, 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 a very um, comprehensive genetic test that looks at all the regions of the genome that we know to cause disease. Mm -hmm. Within the two years that I was there, we were doing whole genome. So whole exome right. is just a sliver yeah. of the genome. And so that two, even that two-year span, I, I just remember thinking this when I left. I'm like, right now we're sitting and we're, we're analyzing a whole genome in our case conference today, and we weren't doing that two years ago. So yeah, it's, it's just, just amazing. phenomenal. Uh -huh. and, and then to think of what's available to patients now from a testing perspective, I mean, the the ability to multiplex and do t multiple genes at once, testing, mm -hmm. um, you know, sequencing, uh, you know, you can do mul multiple samples in the same run. Mm -hmm. It just makes the testing also more cost effective too. Right. So not only is it faster, it's um, lower cost. Mm -hmm. And as evidence grows, insurers have become more willing to cover testing mm -hmm. as well. So people have a lot more access to genetic testing mm -hmm. than, I mean, honestly, just within the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah, really so, growing. Yeah. Um, and so I guess we all know that things tend to have some genetic component, mm -hmm. but these common diseases like you're talking about, 
it's it's not so black and white as, yeah. as some diseases that you you also see in your clinic. Yeah. So you know, a, a patient that maybe has strong family history of heart attacks or coronary artery disease, how do you approach that and, and what do we know about the genetic factors and the environmental factors and the unknown factors and, and how much each of those comes into play? Yeah, that's such a great question and common diseases are, are, are really a challenge because mm -hmm. there's so much that's um, environment, mm -hmm. um, impacted by the environment. Um, but so for you know coronary artery disease, that's that's a condition that you know, as you know, as an internist, you know, you can influence that by your diet, by your activity level, by, you know, whether you smoke or mm -hmm. not. Um, but there's always a familial com component. I mean, we know that people who have a parent with a history of heart disease are going to be at greater risk than somebody right. who doesn't have that. Um, and so that's the genetic component that becomes a little bit more challenging to quantify. Yeah. There are families where there is possibly a single gene disorder that's causing sure. their early heart disease. But mm -hmm. in those families, typically you see earlier heart attacks, mm -hmm. really high cholesterol levels, mm -hmm. a condition called familial hypercholesterolemia. Mm -hmm. Not always, but I mean, that's something that, you know, there are often clues to that. Right. How? Um, so, you know, that's, that's, that's one side of it. But the genomic component to common, I guess, if you want to call it that, coronary artery disease. It's not right. due to a single gene defect. is a huge area of study, and it's actually something where there's a lot coming out um, about polygenic risk, where mm -hmm. it's the, the risk of all those genomic components that we can't really pinpoint one thing, but it's several small right. changes in many different genes um, that all together can increase an individual's risk. And that's something that we're actually moving more towards being able to quantify and potentially incorporate that into patient risk um, stratification. Yeah, and I, I would say that's something that I feel like I'm trying to address with patients a lot. And maybe I'm talking to a new patient and they're worried about risk of heart attacks because one or both parents maybe had a heart attack at, at a certain age and it's hard to know how much how much that impacts their risk. I think there's yeah. still a lot of question marks and unknowns about that and maybe that won't be true in 10 or 20 years we may be able to better quantify what yeah. what that risk is for an individual patient. And it might be less than 10 or 20 years because it's yeah. really, there's a ton of published out there where you can generate a, a genetic risk score for heart disease is one of the, the most helpful and it actually does show, it does discriminate between risk levels and yeah. so it, it's, you're starting We're to getting see better it more at and that more. is what you're yeah. saying, the yeah. more data we collect. Because yes. you know, when you're sequencing someone's genome, the amount, the sheer amount of data, is, it's actually mind-boggling. It's yeah. hard to think about it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, it's what's so, uh, you know, fascinating about it. There's there's a lot of variation, normal variation across right. the human genome, but we are, you know, we haven't we haven't sequenced everyone's genome, so we don't know sure. the the landscape of what's normal and what's what's not. And so mm -hmm. that's something that continues to evolve as well. Yeah. And so are, are there people out there, are there ways to participate in studies that help advance that type of knowledge? Or are there places that are just collecting, you know, normal people's DNA to just get more and more information? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so several. Mm -hmm. um, one that we have is our uh, our Stanford Biobank where um, patients can um, seek out 
participation in that. It's fully elective. It's mm -hmm. no cost, um, and you submit a specimen, and then it, the possibility is that it could go into a uh, bank for research studies related to genetics. Sure. Um, there are large, large, inter, large national and inter, international uh, groups, I should say, uh, like the Million Veterans Program, mm -hmm. uh, where you can, uh, veterans across the country can submit their specimen for, for genetic studies mm -hmm. um, for this very reason. And that, that's just a, an amazing resource. The UK Biobank has, at this point, I, I, I can't say it's, it's, hundreds of thousands of participants mm -hmm. where they're studying um, variation in, in the human genome and how it impacts common disease. Mm -hmm. So, and there are tons of study. I mean, right now, um, fortunately, we have a lot of these um, databases and, and uh, cohorts where um, people are doing genomic studies mm -hmm. in, in large groups because there's a real question of what is the host genomic contribution to severity of COVID or even susceptibility. Yeah, fascinating. And there are international groups studying that as well. So mm -hmm. it's it's um, it's really powerful information to have, and I think we're just we're just at the very yeah. beginning of it. I mean, you think of all the times that patients and physicians ask a question. You know, why does patient A with the same exposure to a virus mm -hmm. get this ill and patient yeah. B gets very not sick. And that's true with COVID-19, but with many other illnesses, infectious illnesses as well. And yeah. we, you know, you might say, well, probably some genetics, probably some yep. unknowns, and, and maybe with all the ability to connect or collect all that information so quickly, we may be able to actually grasp answers of those kinds of questions. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and you know, that, that's true of other environmental things. I think of alcohol and cirrhosis, mm -hmm. you know, there are a lot of people who drink a lot of alcohol for their lifetime and have healthy livers and some get very sick. Right. Um, and lung, certainly there must yeah. be some genetic component there and, and those are questions that we might be able to answer with this technology. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting to see how environmental factors um, will impact one person in a very severe way and another person in, in right. maybe not at all. Right. So, um, but you don't want to, at this point, we can't make any specific recommendations on that or, mm -hmm. you know, you still want to minimize your risk as much of as course. possible for these things. Yeah. So, and yeah. A, another example I think of is, you know, lung cancer and, and smoking would be another good example. And cancer is yes. a place that they are using genetics all the time right now. That's, yes. it's, genetics is used all constantly as, a, as opposed to other fields of medicine where we're maybe mm -hmm. a little bit behind, but mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's it's coming. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Cancer. The, I mean, tumor genomics and, mm -hmm. and figuring out how to treat patients based on the tumor composition, um, to the genetic composition of the tumor. Doing even genetic um, studies to understand if you're predisposed and looking at things like BRCA1 and 2 and how that might um, right play come into play in, in patients who have the right you know mm -hmm. presentation. It's, yeah. It can be very helpful. And, yeah. Good. What if you do have the genetic profile that may lead to a future disease? Prairie Dot co-producer Ginger Thompson spoke with a woman who faced that situation. Lynette Nelson was diagnosed with breast cancer nine years ago. Later, one of her sisters developed lung cancer and another was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Both sisters died in 2019. 
After seeing an ad for affordable genetic testing, Lynette had her blood drawn, and the results showed a rare genetic condition found on the TP53 gene. It's called Lafremini syndrome and is associated with at least six of the most common types of cancer. My youngest sister, so it's just the two of us now, well, kind of thought about it and decided it must have been on my father's side because his father died of cancer and my dad's sister had a type of cancer. Lynette's two daughters and her remaining sister tested positive for the condition, as did her 36-year-old nephew. They now get full-body MRI scans annually to catch any cancers at an early stage, something that may already have saved her nephew's life. My youngest sister's son, who never goes to the doctor, he went and had his full-body MRI and um, they found he had the beginnings of thyroid cancer. So they removed one side of his thyroid. So I mean, he probably would not have known he had cancer until it was stage four, you know, something wrong with it. So the best thing that came out of all these tests is that it saved him from finding out later. Some people may not want to know if they're predisposed to a disease, but that wasn't the case with Lynette, who believes that knowledge is power. I just thought it was very interesting that maybe there was a cause why my two sisters got cancers. It just wasn't fair. You know, three girls out of four in just one family, why did three get cancer? Lynette sent a letter to her relatives notifying them of the syndrome in case they wanted genetic testing. If your family or anyone has any kind of a, a special disease or uh, cancer or whatever, a simple genetic test will take care of their findings. great example of what we can do with genetic counseling and genetic testing mm -hmm. for patients. I mean, I think that's not a, an uncommon story that someone maybe has several relatives with different types of cancer and to even someone like me, it may not, I, there, it may not fit a pattern with some of these genetic syndromes, right? So yeah. um, that, that's really where specialty consultation mm -hmm. can be warranted. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, and I think what is, is changing too is that as we, as more people are, you know, able to have genetic testing and we're kind of expanding what the, you know, what we kind of previously thought to be the, the specific clinical characteristics, mm -hmm. it's kind of growing. And so they're not as maybe recognizable right. as before. Maybe somebody presents not quite as you would expect, or, you know, their family, you know, for example, in the hereditary breast and ovarian cancer families, mm -hmm. if, if, if there aren't a lot of women in the family, sure. you may, it may not present. And so um, we say, you know, really, if, if someone has a question or it's concerned, um, at the very, you know, have, have them talk with a genetic counselor and, yeah. and kind of can pull out that family history, see if there's anything suspicious, suspicious and then mm -hmm. decide to pursue testing if, if yeah. necessary. And I think an important point here too is this is, you know, a sophisticated and pretty specialized field. So, you know, I, I'm a primary care physician. Mm -hmm. 
if someone comes to me with that family history, the next step is not for me to order blood testing for them. It's really to refer on to the genetic counselors and, and the specialists to discuss what pattern might this fit, number one. And yeah. number two, it, is testing warranted? And number right. three, do you actually want testing? And yeah. that's, a, that's a big conversation in itself. Yes, yeah, yeah definitely. Mm -hmm. And so that's where uh, genetic counselors, geneticists, like. Um, myself, that's where we'll kind of take it from there and kind of help help move that process along. Right. Um, you know, the question of for patients, it is important to decide if, if you you want to pursue um, genetic testing. Um, mo you know, most of the time when we see patients, they they do. I mean, that's why they're that's there. That's why they've gone that far, um, right? Yeah. Yeah, and and usually the number one reason is that they'll say, "I want to know how this is going to impact my family." Yeah. So. A lot of times for genetic testing, we can we, we can diagnose. Um, there's many times not a treatment. In some cases, like in Lynette's case, mm -hmm. there there's a, um, a a plan of action you make. You you know how frequently you get you know MRIs and imaging to look for mm -hmm. potential cancers that may um, that may arise. Um, but but a lot of times there isn't, and so a big really benefit that comes out of a genetic diagnosis is to be able to tell a family member well your risk is this mm -hmm. and or you know what is the risk of recurrence to future children and right. and that can be really really helpful and powerful right and give insight as to whether you know if if for example, a great example, so a common example that I see is if a woman has a diagnosis of breast cancer um, and you know maybe she's in the midst of undergoing treatment for that and has family history or has the right tumor markers, she may get genetic testing mm -hmm. done. And if, if that test's negative, then she can rest assured that she's not passing down one of those abnormal BRCA genes to her daughters or children. Um, but if it's positive, it kind of empowers her yes. to talk to her children about that, right? Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah absolutely. And, you know, it's it, we've learned so much in that that list of BRCA1 and 2 has, has grown. There are others. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that we, some, we always kind of emphasize the positive, but when, a fam when, when you're patient is positive um, and their children test negative, you've just relieved them from oh, a yeah. lot of additional testing and of worry the and that, 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 that they have it. with this high risk and maybe yeah. that's actually not true. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, think, things that I think people see a lot, which we'd call direct to consumer testing. Yes. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of examples of these, right? Mm -hmm. I think um, 23andMe is a common mm -hmm. one. I think Ancestry does one. And, you know, you send in your swab and, and they give you, they send you back a, this list of things that maybe you have higher or lower than average risk for. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. What type of technology do they use compared to the technology that 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 you Critical. use in your yep. labs, yep. and and where might they be helpful, and where are they where do they fall short? Yeah, so um, these are you know everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, what I think has just been so interesting about it is that the popularity has really yes. emphasized that there's there's a public interest in mm -hmm. knowing a, the genetic side of 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 uh, yourself. So. Mm -hmm. Um, but but typically what those tests are, it's um, it's kind of like the cliff notes of your genome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so instead of you know reading every line of every page and every chapter, you're maybe doing every you know few words. 
And so it's just kind of hot spots. So it's definitely not something that you would want to take away and get a result from and feel like this is this is it. Like this mm -hmm. is some you know this is a I can take this and and go get um, more frequent mammograms or something. Because right. what what you can do with a lot of those um, programs <laughs> is you can get the data. And, and then there are other third-party um, programs out there where you can, it will analyze the data and then mm -hmm. it will tell you, you know, do you have various um, changes in genes that, that we know to cause disease. Um, but the, the thing is they're not made for that. So right. we can't really use that information. Um, and so I always tell patients, like, th these types of tests are fun. They are, and that's kind of where it stops. <laughs> um, and I actually brought my results because I, I had done this a while ago, and I, I just, you know, again, for fun. Um, mm -hmm. But I also wanted to kind of see what, what yeah. people get out of it, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and this is just one of them. Um, but it tells you um, various things like health predisposition, and they do look at a couple of changes in the BRCA1 mm -hmm. and 2 genes, but only three. And so and that's... how many are there? Like I mean, thousands, thousands. So, so you're missing, yes. Potentially so thousands of exactly. that you might look for. So this is not what you're going to hang right. your hat on, right? You got, if you, this is something where, um, if, if you felt like there was a concern or someone had recommended that you yeah. go see a geneticist, then you come to the geneticist and we'll like... This isn't good enough it. if you've got this a isn't good enough. History. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And similarly, if you get a positive from this, we would still want to right. confirm that too. So, but some of the fun things are, you know, like I, um, well, you could see your ancestry, which is, you know, relatively yeah, accurate and it's kind of fun. And it's kind of fun. Mm -hmm. um, various traits like... Um, I think it has my earwax type or something like that. <laughs> um, oh, well, it says I'm not likely to have red hair. This is my real true, color. Correct. True. Um, yeah, no widow's peak. True. Um, <laughs> likely to wake up around 7:57 a.m. Well, true. If I had my way, I would probably do that, but it's not happening. <laughs> but you don't so, know no. whether that would be true or not, right? You have young kids, yeah, and uh, exactly, they don't let me do that. Um, so you know, these are just fun things that you can't really do much with from a medical perspective. Um, um, but if you have a question about a possible genetic disease, then that's when you would want to yeah. come see a geneticist, genetic counselor, and we can kind of help you through that. Yeah. And we'll, we're going to hear from a genetic counselor a, a little bit later in the show, but you're working with mm -hmm. that profession mm -hmm. all the time, and yep. they have a little bit different background and complement what you do. But do you ever see someone before they've seen the genetic counselor, or have they always pretty much gone through genetic counseling before they see so, you yeah so yeah. typically we work in tandem and mm -hmm. um, a genetic counselor will have seen the patient before I do and really that's it's a great partnership you know they're that that's a master's trained uh, field and they really work to you know um, generate the pedigree or the, mm -hmm. the family history but then there's also counseling um, both um, at the beginning of the visit and then downstream. And I think we mentioned, you know, not everybody who comes to genetic clinic, genetics clinic ends up with a genetic test, mm -hmm. but um, a lot of kind of getting to that point is, is really counseling. And so right. this is, a, this is a, a counseling field as much as, as it is a medical mm -hmm. um, science field sure. as well. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, prescription medications in a field of pharmacogenomics. This is something that maybe 
has made it a little bit more into primary mm -hmm. care. We have availability of genetic tests about how people metabolize certain types of drugs. Um, how, like, how, how has that progressed? How helpful do you typically find it? Um, and who are the right people to get that type of testing done? Yeah, so pharmacogenetic testing has come a long way. Um, and it's, it's, it's one of those things, again, where it's helpful for certain medications. So it's not right. like it's a test where um, you're going to find out every med you should be on. Because right. that's sometimes the misconception. Yes. Or every med you should not be on. Mm -hmm. um, it is most helpful, though, before you're on a med. It's nicer to have that information and use it from the beginning um, and to help with the decision making than, than starting a certain class of medications and then, and then getting it. It's still helpful, but probably mm -hmm. the most powerful time is preemptively. So there are, you know, a number of options out there where you can where you can get that done. Um, but it's it's helpful in cardiology is one area where it's it's particularly helpful um, with regard to Plavix or a, um, antiplatelet medication that sometimes people will get when they get a stent. Um, it, you see it um, have significant um, impacts in use of prescribing um, antidepressants, mm -hmm. that can be a helpful area. Um, pain medication, there's now data to show that um, using pharmacogenetics to um, dose your pain medication actually can help with um, reducing the amount of pain meds used and the amount of pain med actually, you know, wasted. So it's it's a it's another one of those fields that's really growing. There's a um, consortium called CPIC, which basically functions to translate the research to the clinical mm -hmm. space and comes up with the guidelines of how do you use this information because that's yeah. I mean it's challenging it's I hard mean, yeah you know, we, we learned sort of how to use medications in certain disease states based on you know randomized trials that mm -hmm. didn't use genetics and so mm -hmm. it's hard to know when is the right time you know that we just yeah. we're not quite that far along in in having studied that directly clinically yeah. and so yeah. it is challenging in inpatient care yeah and it's it's um it's an interesting field too because in um it, you probably won't it, it's probably going to change kind of how you see clinical trials for sure for for this space just because you see benefits in in a shorter time with pharmacogenetics than you do with other things. So it's an interesting, it's definitely interesting. It's hard to, I think, because when the results of a pharmacogenetic test come back, they are, they're pretty complicated. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and so just kind of figuring that part out. And mm -hmm. so what it's really important for our field to do is make sure that when we have these test results that they are generated in such a way that they're useful at the right. time of, you know, when the, physician needs them. Right. So there's growing interest in actually how do you implement pharmacogenetic testing. Yeah. And that's another type of testing that again just based on the technology is a lot less expensive today yeah. than it was. Oh yeah. You know it's been available for a while yeah. but the, the cost is not particularly high. Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 And a lot of um, more and more health systems are actually beginning to offer that uh, to their patients as, 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 a, as a service. Mm -hmm. um, you're starting to see insurers cover various components of it, but mm -hmm. but um, that's yeah, still growing. Yeah, still pay out of pocket for yeah. at least for some some of those tests. Yeah, um, yeah. And are are there other you know do you foresee other fields of medicine being able to use pharmacogenomics oh, in, in a useful way? I mean, yeah, I mean, we talked about oncology as as 
a place where genomics are used constantly and yeah. probably more than any other field of medicine. But, oh, yeah. yeah. But I mean, you know, there are guidelines for medications that are used in, you know, cardiology, um, I'd say infectious disease, uh, even mm -hmm. for surgery partners, you know, that pain. Uh, yeah. that pain side of things is, is a big deal. Yeah, um, when you can predict that you're going to need to use yeah. medications. Yeah, mm -hmm. and just with the dosing and figuring out which dose is right. And mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just really expanding to, to a number of different areas. I mean, we actually even just um, over-the-counter NSAIDs, um, there's guidelines now to how to dose that based on a genotype. So, yeah, fascinating. And that can help to reduce adverse effect, uh, events. Right. Yeah. So much. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a as a you know a young physician, you feel like you've learned and know everything there is to learn, and it's it's so <laughs> blatantly obvious that in I, in ten years this is going to be so much farther along than it was when oh. I was in training. Oh yeah. Yeah. It just never never stops. <laughs> yeah. Genetic counseling exists to help us navigate the meaning, results, and possible outcomes of our genetic examinations. A genetic counselor is um, a good mix between providing genetics education and kind of the medical part of um, genetic conditions along with psychosocial counseling and trying to help a family or a patient understand either the genetic condition that they have or the genetic condition that they're at risk for. A person might see a genetic counselor for a variety of reasons. The typical three areas that we think of genetic counselors working in are prenatal, cancer, and pediatrics. But that's by no means the only areas that a genetic counselor currently practices in. As we've learned more, we have genetic counselors in the cardiology field, in the neurology field. I work in adult genetics. So all those kids have to grow up to become adults and still need genetics care. So I work more in the primary care field with any adults that have genetic concerns. The key piece of most genetic counseling involves the personal and family history of the patient. So we spend a good chunk of our time going over um, in a patient's personal history or, and or family history. And we actually make a pedigree um, where it kind of looks like a family tree where we note the parents, the children, the grandparents, aunts and uncles. Um, there's different symbols meaning different things. And it really helps us track different conditions and symptoms throughout the family. And after doing that, then we'll talk about what we're seeing, talk about if there is certain patterns or um, if genetic testing might be appropriate, if it might give clarity to whatever is the, the concern in the family. Genetic testing is not always the end result of a genetic counseling visit, though. Sometimes there isn't an appropriate genetic test. Sometimes the family isn't um, actually, doesn't really seem like there's something genetic going on. Um, and sometimes the patient doesn't want to know that. That's something that makes them anxious or they prefer not to know that. And that's really the value of a genetic counseling visit. We're not um, there just to provide genetic tests, but are um, there to talk about what does this mean for me and my family? Is this something I want to know? How is this going to be helpful for me in the future? Um, so they can come up with a decision that makes the most sense for them. And so the, the goal of Imaginetics was to make genetics relevant to everybody, not just in the cancer clinic, not just in the prenatal clinic, not just in the cardiology clinic, but every patient that comes in deserves the, uh, um, the chance to talk about their genes, to talk about their family history, and to benefit from trying to um, 
modulate risks and um, reduce the burden of disease if we can learn more about how family history could guide their care. Great. So that is a, a, just a great discussion about genetic counseling and how it complements the actual science of the, the genetic testing. So let's, how about an example of a patient when then maybe they have several family members that they know have had various cancers, maybe like the first role in patient that we saw. Yeah. What can they expect when they come to your clinic? So they'll probably meet with someone like Megan, the genetic yep. counselor first, and yep. like how much time does it take to come up with all that information and talk through all that stuff? And, and then what, what next? How do, how do things go? Yeah, so typically, right, our visits are, it will be Megan and I work together and um, and so the patient will see Megan first and she'll go through exactly what she talked about. The, that pedigree is uh, a large part of it. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's interesting because we actually do send, um, we'll send a packet out to our patient, patients ahead of time that includes areas where they can fill in their family history, sure. which is I think hugely helpful because there are so many things that you don't know about your family. Sure. Until I mean, you, I imagine the phone yes. calls that it would probably take yeah. to get all the information that you're after. Yeah. yeah. So it can be, it's really powerful because mm -hmm. that is one of the key um, key factors of how we can better understand whether what's going on is mm -hmm. something that we can potentially um, diagnose with a mm -hmm. genetic test. Um, and so then, um, and then I'll see the patient. And my so my training is medical, and so my it includes you know doing their history, physical exam, mm -hmm. and then we decide you know okay based on how the patient's presenting, maybe their personal or family history. So um, if there's you know in this family's case there were. Um, multiple, well, actually this family kind of came in a different way. They, mm -hmm. they came in through a preemptive screen, but in mm -hmm. some, in, in families like this, there are multiple family members with suspicious cancers. And so in that particular condition, Lee-Fermini syndrome, um, you'll see things like soft tissue, sarcoma, mm -hmm. soft tissue sarcomas. Which um, are really rare cancers Very rare cancers right? yeah. otherwise. Mm -hmm. Adrenal cortical carcinoma, another mm -hmm. rare types, or some pediatric onset of, of tumors. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so you kind of pull all that together and say, okay, this is suspicious for Maybe leave from any, but uh, but on but uh, but oftentimes we have a differential diagnosis sure. where there is a list of things there that it could be different syndromes that yeah. cause that. Yeah, yeah, um, or say a family where there are you know multiple women with early onset breast cancer, or, sure. or, or there or there's ovarian cancer mm -hmm. in the family, or maybe there's male bre male breast cancer. With we can't about, we cannot forget yeah. about the men in this situation because mm -hmm. it is really. Um, I think oftentimes people hear BRCA1 and 2 and they're like, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's a man, right. I don't have to worry about it. But men are as likely to get the gene, just a little less likely to get that particular cancer yeah. otherwise. Yeah. Less cancer, but also there's increased risk for prostate cancer mm -hmm. and pancreatic cancer as mm -hmm. well. But don't forget, men can have daughters. Right. And if they do have it, they can pass it on to, mm -hmm. to, their, to their children. So. So then we determine whether testing is appropriate. We determine which test. We um, send a lot of our tests to commercial labs. There are several out there that do a phenomenal job, um, and the, and they and they can do it at a, a reasonable um, cost because they're so large. Mm -hmm. So that helps. Um, 
And then once we get a result back, if it's positive, then particularly for cancer predisposition syndromes, yeah. there are um, recommended surveillance protocols right. to follow. And so then we'll see those patients on an ongoing basis to help with managing that. Sure. And we also do that because those recommendations change and evolve. And right. that's often not something the primary care provider is really comfortable with. Cassie, I didn't even know that a full body MRI was something we yeah. ever did for anybody yeah. <laughs> until until this, this very, yeah. you know, that's an unusual It's a very unusual thing to do. Yes. So yeah. that's, I mean, yeah. that's why and, and that's one where people are like, oh my gosh, is that really necessary? Well, the, there is very good long-term data of follow-up, 10 plus years of follow-up mm -hmm. in these patients where you see significant improvement in their outcomes mm -hmm. because they have that, that ongoing surveillance and detection and the, mechanism. Yeah. yeah. And certainly the, the full body MRI isn't the outcome of even most mm. genetic syndromes, the, no. the P53 mutation no. is, a, is, is a unique, is unique. one. Yeah, no. But it might mean different few. types of screening. It might mean more frequent mm -hmm. screening. It might be screening for things that in the general population we wouldn't recommend screening for, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, you know, that's just kind of in the f field of cancer mm -hmm. when you think about other rare disease, like, you know, the families. Um, that I was talking about before, where that's a you know maybe a twenty-something-year-old yeah. who has you know intellectual disability or motor delay, mm -hmm. speech problems. There's and there's clearly something going on yet to be diagnosed. A genetic diagnosis is often really helpful for those families because it number one answers the question of what's been going on with my child all of these years. Yeah. It um it gives a name to what's going on. So many many times there are patient advocacy groups sure. for these conditions mm -hmm. and social media is very powerful in this right. space. So have I ever would have thought I would have recommended Facebook in my medical <laughs> advice to patients? No, but um, but but I know that I have families who will go on there and they can communicate with other families who have sure. children with the same thing. And it's, it's just really helpful to have others who know what you've been through. Right. That can be helpful in, you know, knowing prognosis, knowing, you know, treatments, what worked for you, oh, that didn't work mm -hmm. for me, but this did, you know. For rare things. Yeah, for rare things. Otherwise, there may not be a lot of data behind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So what are, are there any t examples that you could think of that genetic testing leads to treating someone with a, a certain type of medication that might prevent disease or anything like that? I think of someone, you know, that, that maybe has that familial hypercholesterolemia yeah. that might mm -hmm. change your actual management. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, there, there are some out there. I should, mm -hmm. um, familial hypercholesterolemia is a, is a great example. Mm -hmm. And that's one that, um, you know, people have really high bad, bad, mm -hmm bad cholesterol. Um, and what happens um, is that because of that, they have a significantly increased risk for heart disease. So you have to treat them appropriately. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes that bad cholesterol doesn't get controlled by just your typical, typical methods. methods. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so you, you, they need to be on another medication. Mm -hmm. And so having that genetic diagnosis can actually help to get approval, mm -hmm. um, insurance approval for the medication. Um, so that's that makes a big difference. And that condition is so fascinating with the large genomic studies that have been done, we're finding that the prevalence is probably greater than what was previously yeah, thought. isn't that interesting? And about 90% mm -hmm. of people who have it are not diagnosed. Sure. And that's because those, those cholesterol levels can actually kind of fall in the high end of normal and they might not be recognized as mm -hmm. bad. Sure. But then they're they're hard to control, and mm -hmm. so it can be really hard to, yeah, to manage. That is, and that's you know we talk about the technology of the testing that's changed, but in that condition in particular, 
10 years ago, you didn't really have more to offer than the standard yeah. statin therapy. Yeah. And now we actually have new drugs yeah. that when they were studied and approved, were studied in this very population of people. Yeah. And, and it's a it's kind of a unique situation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's mm -hmm. a really, um, that's kind of a, one of my favorites to, to think about how genetics has really changed yeah. the care of those patients. Yeah. Do you work with pediatric geneticists and 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 sort of co-manage patients that are at that in-between stage? Or tell us more about pediatric genetics as you know it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So all geneticists go through pediatric training, which mm -hmm. was um, you know something that I had to kind of gear up for because I had been a practicing internist right. and not seen a baby for a long time, <laughs> and I didn't have any kids of my own at the time. Um, <laughs> But, and I remember my first week in there, I was in the NICU and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm just afraid. Oh, Cassie, to that touch. sounds terrifying. Yes, it was <laughs> terrifying. Um, but, so we work really closely with our pediatric colleagues. And the thing mm -hmm. with it is, you know, we can all see um, all ages. It's just that sure. some of us will kind of specialize in one area or another. But the truth of the matter is genetics runs in families. And so right. if I'm, you know, if I see um, an adult with something and their child has it, I'll probably see the whole, the whole family and similarly for my pediatric colleagues because it mm -hmm. just makes sense to have kind of one person right. caring for the, the, whole, the whole family, family. Mm -hmm. so um, yeah that's a it's a good um, it's a good back and forth it's uh, similar training um, I mean it's the same training but sometimes you just kind of you know emphasize you know, kind of spend more time in the sure. areas where you're sure where you have the greatest interest um, what misconceptions do you see out there be it in patients and the general population, among physicians, you know what 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 misconceptions do you think are out there about genetics and medicine? Either are you know maybe we underuse it, maybe there yeah. are places that we think there's more opportunity for use than there actually is. Yes, Which, exactly. Yeah. I think you have both ends of the spectrum. <laughs> I think some people think genetics are scary and they kind of run from it. Um, and then I think there's some who fall in the category like that's the answer to it all. Mm -hmm. And I think in reality, you know, we should probably all fall somewhere in the middle. It's going right. to provide some great knowledge for, you know, screening, prevention, treatment ultimately, but it will never be, you know, the silver bullet. Right. Um, but it's not something we should run from because it, it through, like in Lynette's case, I think she uh, described, you know, knowledge is power and, the, and knowing this mm -hmm. um, has given their family the ability to, to screen for things and like she brought up her, um, her nephew who, right. who had an early cancer identified. Yeah. And another, you know, sometimes I'll have patients, um, I can think of one patient who has a mother who had ovarian cancer and has had aunts with breast cancer and highly suspicious for probably a genetic mutation, but none of those people who actually had the cancer opted into testing. And it's a little more challenging to get the person that doesn't have the disease the initial genetic mm -hmm. testing. Yeah. Is that still true That's with we, insurance coverage? So, no. You know, well, yes and no. I would say <laughs> that those patients, we're still that, you know, in that situation, we definitely should see that patient. We mm -hmm. should help them out. Um, the good news is there's there are options out there where patients can um, get testing and if they have to pay out of pocket, it's just, it's less than a couple hundred dollars. And so it's, mm -hmm. it's, still it's you know expensive but it's not as prohibitive as it previously was right. but i will say that um, criteria for coverage um, particularly in that case right. has improved so that we can capture can patients typically. in that case and it's oh, hard to interpret those results because sure. really the most helpful result in that case is a positive right um, because a negative doesn't mean that there isn't any 
heritable condition. Sure. It just means that there's not the heritable condition that we tested for. Right, right. So in most of those cases, the ideal is to have the patient who has or had the disease yep. get the first test so you know yep. what you're looking for in yep. their relatives. It's yeah. always best to test the affected person. Yeah, 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 yeah. great. And now for the answer to tonight's Prairie Dot Quiz question. True or false? Direct-to-consumer home test kits for genetic disease risk are all standardized and validated the same as a certified genetics lab. The answer is false. While they can be fun, these DIY tests are no substitute for a certified lab genetic test. We'll be right back after this. For nearly two decades, the Prairie Doc organization has endeavored to enhance health and diminish suffering by providing useful information based on honest science in a respectful and compassionate manner. Health professionals volunteer to answer your questions each week, creating a vast Prairie Doc library of medical information available to you and your family 24 hours a day. Make sure you don't miss a thing. Follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook and YouTube for free and easy access to the entire Prairie Doc Library. In a truly grand feat of modern science, the Human Genome Project, an international collaborative effort, set out in 1990 to map our genetic makeup using diverse human genetic samples. In 2003, the project was completed, ultimately showing about 20,000 human genes. Since that project's completion, with ever-improving DNA sequencing technology, genomics researchers continue to gather more and more information about human DNA. A single human cell contains a mind-numbing six billion base pairs. Each base pair is one of four types of nucleic acid molecules in its DNA, organized into 23 pairs of chromosomes. Fascinatingly, only 1.5% of our DNA actually codes for proteins, while the vast remainder is non-coding DNA, serving a regulatory function, or at least as far as we understand, no function at all. In 2007, the first individual human genome was sequenced and published. In 2008, James Watson, as in this 1962 Nobel Prize winning Watson and Crick model of the DNA double helix, poetically had his genome sequenced and published. The ability to sequence an individual human's genome held much promise, we hoped, in regards to predicting illness and personalizing medical interventions. But in 2020, this promise remains very much unfulfilled. In most cases, primary care physicians don't yet utilize genomics information in our daily practice. Why is this? The short answer, it's complicated. In some specific instances, genetic information can clearly convey an increased risk for disease. One example of this might be the BRCA gene mutation, an associated risk of future breast or ovarian cancer. Because this specific gene mutation is so tightly linked with elevated risk, testing and finding the mutation in an individual based on their family history or a known relative with mutation can have direct practical implications on strategies for cancer screening or even consideration of surgery to remove the at-risk tissue. 
Scenarios like BRCA mutation are outliers, however. When we look to common diseases such as cardiovascular disease or diabetes, finding genetic information useful gets, well, complicated. In these cases, what we have found is that many genes are involved, and it is extremely difficult to estimate how much a mutation in one of those genes affects overall risk. That's not to mention all the environmental factors which may affect risk as much or more than gen the genetic profile. Genomics remains a vast, new, and thus far difficult to access specialty of medicine. At its current rate of growth, however, I am confident my previous statement will not remain true during my career in medicine. Big thank you to our guest, Dr. Katherine Hayek, for volunteering her time to help us learn more about making sense of our genetic code. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, it's great to be here. If you would like more information about this program or to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. That does it for tonight. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Your relationship with your primary medical care provider is vitally important, but there are other factors which have dramatic and subtle effects on your life. How our place in the world affects our health. Next time, On Call with the Prairie Doc. For nearly 20 years, the Prairie Doc programs have provided health care information in our state and across the region. Hello, I'm Dr. Jennifer May of Rapid City, and I serve as a board member on the Healing Words Foundation, which provides the funding for the Prairie Doc programs. Each week, our Prairie Doc and other medical professionals volunteer many hours to share science-based truth on healthcare, on public television, on the radio, in our newspapers, and online. And best of all, everyone has free and easy access to the entire Prairie Doc library. I ask you to make a donation. Please help us continue this important work. Go to prairiedoc.org and make a donation today. Thank you. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, the South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, Fishback Financial Corporation, South Dakota Foundation for Medical Care, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, 
Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Aberdeen District Medical Society, Urology Specialist, Orthopedic Institute, Physicians Care Sanford Clinic Community Service Committee, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swift Health Communications.